This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. For more than 40 years, Helix Education's enrollment growth solutions, including outsourced program management, enrollment marketing, and retention services, have helped colleges and universities successfully find, enroll, retain, teach, and graduate post-traditional learners. To learn more about how data can drive your institution's enrollment growth, visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. And hello, welcome to the Higher Education Happy Hour podcast. I am Kevin Carey from New America, and I am joined today by my colleague, Libby Nelson from Vox.com. Hi, Kevin. It's just the two of us. It's I think this is us. our first. Cheers. Cheers. We are drinking um, Manhattans today in recognition of our new Manhattan-based overlord. and uh, Possibly permanently Manhattan-based. I think that's right. Location yeah. of the, the White House, the seat of government, <laughs> will be moved to Trump Tower. That's like, like all things, only half a joke now. Um, um, yeah, he apparently yeah. wants to spend weekends in New York, so that is actually not a joke at all. And why not? Why stop there? Why not just kind of come down? I mean, Congress <laughs> is only here one, two nights a week, right? I think that Tuesday was his rationale, which it, I, I find convincing, I mean, but okay. you know, <laughs> yeah. he's an old man. People don't like to change their environment. He's got nice digs up there. I think we need to. We should ask John to change our like lead-in music to something kind of funereal and, and yeah, it's it's a little down, jazzy today. Right? I would yeah. say. So of course, if we do that, our listeners have already heard it. So that's why. <laughs> Um, so it is uh, November 15th. It's a week after the uh, last presidential election. Um, you know, it occurs to me that if you want one way that you could sort of track the like progression of, you know, like mocking disbelief and like somewhat less mocking acceptance and then overconfidence and then ultimately uh, uh, sorrow in the face of tragedy of this whole election would be to take a few people who are sort of paying attention and just record them once a month starting about a year and a half ago. And see what they say. And I, I, I feel like our podcast was accidentally a sort of Trump ascension podcast all along. It, it, it is a little bit. It's interesting. I, I think I thought that Trump had always been with us. And then I realized I had sort of forgotten the first like six to eight months we did of this podcast. I was busy. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking of it as a year old for, I guess, right. almost a year now. Um, so, but the 2016 election has been with us from the very beginning. Yes. As I recall. Um, Jeb Bush was Jeb Bush was among us. No, that's right. Yeah, we were into the early the early Republican candidates, and then first started making jokes about Trump. So I guess like, our Trump jokes would yeah. have started last summer, yeah, like, about, like, like last August, you know, like, yeah. um, probably thereabouts. If anybody yeah. wants to open this time capsule and yeah. let us know, or maybe June even. I think maybe a little, even a little bit before that. I think when some of the first polls came out, you know, the first Trump University jokes, the first giving Andrew a hard time. Um, I saw Andrew a few weeks ago. How is Andrew? Uh, yeah, he's good. This, this at, important, uh, at uh, the higher ed working group. Um, uh, he was it was great. It was up at AEI. You I, know? I wanted to come if only to see Andrew, but you rudely scheduled it the month before a presidential um, election when I did that. literally nothing else. Yeah. Oh, was it the week? Yeah, it I think I looked before. at the date and was, was like, no, not, not happening. Um, he's doing great. He's super busy. Um, he has not been listening to our podcast, which I asked him about. So so he's probably not listening to this now. But if he is, hey, Andrew. Um, yeah, no, he's doing great. He's all moved down into North Carolina and. You know, learning that working for the government means an awful lot of meetings with an awful lot of people, and mm-hmm. you can't just go and do stuff, which is what everyone who ever goes to work for government says right away. Well, I'm sorry he's not here, because I would love to get his uh, take on 
the what whether the Jeb Bush plan will be born again in a Maybe. Trump administration. My my money is on no, but he is better now. I'm not hundred percent glad that he's. Not, I'm I'm sort of glad he's not here <laughs> because I'm having trouble with my Republican friends and their triumphalism and my sort of total unwillingness to give take to like put up with that at all right now and and judging everybody and feeling sad about things. Um, Interesting. So, I know I know some Republicans. I know very few triumphant Republicans. Interesting. Uh, my mother and I, who have very opposite political views, shared a moment of mild disdain for Donald Trump mm-hmm. uh, on Tuesday that I think was our first shared opinion right. in 10 years. So that's that's interesting. I think I want to make a note about our drinks. You know, so as we were preparing them, uh, John Williams, the head of uh, AV here at, at New American, also an ace mixologist, was telling me that I brought the wrong kind of vermouth. I brought you bitter vermouth. You maybe did the wrong kind of vermouth. Of the wrong kind of vermouth. vermouth. <laughs> but I feel like bitter Manhattans are appropriate, you know, so we're going to suffer through this and drink a not quite as good drink because uh, we, I think thematically it makes a lot of sense. We will tweet the recipe, but yeah. it is roughly half yeah. bourbon to yeah. roughly half dry vermouth yeah. um, and some bitters. And a little yeah. sugar would help this if you yeah. guys have sugar sitting around. I, I don't know if we do. Whatever, it's we fine. Pour some of the Martino cherry it's fine. juice we can into keep it. Going. Yeah. Um, bitter Manhattans. Yeah, I think that'll be the maybe we'll, that'll just be the perma perma drink going okay, forward. Okay, right. I'm gonna try this cherry juice. Okay, all right. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, a, a few things. I mean, I think it was uh, we could do football at the beginning or the end. Although, as I was saying to you by email, the other thing we've been talking about is Big Ten football, and again, as if they were totally uh, different bit. topics. But it turned out that it was basically the Big Ten that drove Trump to victory. Yeah, the, the Big Ten. Uh, the Big Ten was our yeah. real topic all along. Right? Who, who knew? We didn't realize that in kind of you know the passions of our uh, uh, former friends and neighbors in the middle and upper Midwest that we were actually talking about <laughs> the part of America that would step up on election day and drive Donald Trump into the White House. So as a person who has spent time in Ohio, yeah. I feel that anyone who has spent any time in Ohio has, or Michigan or Wisconsin mm-hmm. has um, gotten to weigh in. I. I Unfortunately, have little experience in any of those areas, but I, I have a little bit in Pennsylvania. But I'm curious about what you make of the Ohio swing. I don't know. Well, I mean, but it's so yeah. I, I mean, I went to Ohio State for two years. I lived in Indiana for six years, and That's so right. I feel like okay. I have. But they're all you know, they're pretty similar places. Mm-hmm. My wife's from Wisconsin. You know, I've been, I mean, they're not they're not all that different. You know, mm-hmm. it is a it is a distinct culture. There's sort of a line between the Midwest and the South that kind of run, you know runs a little bit north of the Ohio River, and then. You get out into the Great Plains area, and and so um, uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm like a lot of people, just kind of puzzled by. Mm-hmm. I mean, Indiana voted for Obama in 2008, right? I mean, and and then this year they were just sort of solid red and mm-hmm. uh, threw Evan Bayh out, um, mm-hmm. which again, not a huge loss since Evan Bayh wasn't exactly a stalwart progressive man for our time, um, but you know made a big difference in terms of the Senate and like yeah. all the rest of it. Uh, so like a lot of those are the same people, right? You know, mm-hmm. so there, there's like some non-trivial number of like Obama Trump voters out there. Right. I just, I don't know how to wrap my head around that. I don't know what to, how to sort of think that through. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to relitigate all of the interesting internet yeah. debates over the motivations of Trump voters. And I think it comes right. down to, it's not, it's not one thing. Um, yeah. I think the research on sort of activating racism in a way Obama did not, mm-hmm. ironically, by talking about it and by the level of discussion there's yeah. been is uh, persuasive. That's um, interesting, right? Convinc- yeah. yeah. So if, if you're not familiar with this research and have not been mm. doing nothing but watch people fight about this on Twitter for a week, as I have, um, there basically is research that shows that if you make white people aware of increasing diversity, even liberal white people, it makes them uncomfortable and it makes them more politically conservative. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of gets at this, how did people vote for a black candidate twice and then vote for Trump in this very racially mm-hmm. uh, inflected election? But people sort of forget, I had forgotten until I read this, that like Obama did not run by talking about race ever. 
under any circumstances, um, other than that famous speech in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And that maybe sort of the the context of the past year, the fact that Clinton actually ran as a much more explicitly anti-racist candidate than Mm -hmm. Obama did, was was activating. Um, I am from, I I lived for a year in one of the counties in Pennsylvania that swung the Mm -hmm. furthest. Um, Yeah, so I think Clinton still won Lackawanna County. Uh, which is where Scranton is, but it is not. It was not by very much. I mean, it was like a thirty to forty percent mm-hmm. drop in a very, very stalwart Democratic area. Um, and it's I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the stereotypical Trump voter kind of place. Like I didn't mm-hmm. go there to write about it because I didn't want to be the twelve thousandth person right. to go to a stereotypical yeah. Trump voter kind of place. And in fact, I was the one saying, "No, there's a good espresso bar in Scranton. There's a great Lebanese right. restaurant. Like there's there's more to this mm-hmm. than like sad cold miners." looking off into right. space, but yeah. it is, I mean, it is the stereotype and the stereotype was true. I mean, Mark Schmidt, who's our, the director of our political reform program here said that, you know, the, the, the counties that swung the hardest from mm-hmm. 2012 to 2016 were the ones where the unemployment rate dropped the most, mm-hmm. dropped the most, right? You know, so again, it's not, so it's sort of like, well, you know, economic anxiety, but it doesn't really match up and racism, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's a mystery. An interesting thing, perhaps for our listeners, is there are like 12 counties in America that went the mm. other way and they got bluer, um, that flipped from mm. from red to blue. Right. Interestingly, I, my parents live in one, which is how I mm. got interested in this. My my parents are both lifelong Republicans. Um, I don't know how my mom voted. My dad voted for Johnson. And so out of curiosity, mm. I pulled up the map and I learned that uh, in their county, which is a large county, it's the second largest county in Nebraska, mm. Clinton had won by 77 votes. Um, so first of all, I was like, okay, well, right. I guess you actually yeah. made a difference by denying Donald Trump a vote in a, on a small mm. small scale. But then I got interested in their past voting patterns in other counties. At least two of those 12 counties are big state university counties. Mm. It's Lincoln, um, which is where my parents right. live in Nebraska, Center County, which is State College in Pennsylvania, was another mm. one. And so I don't know if that was college students voting in state, mm. um, if it was the liberal professors not joining the tide. But it, yeah. it is a place that you wouldn't expect to not be Trumpy. It's in a very... Trump supporting state. I mean, there are counties in Nebraska where he got like 90, 95% of the vote. Right. Um, but something about these, these like university enclaves were the mm. only places resisting that. I trend. worry about those enclaves in the yeah. coming. Like, I think so, kind of shifting into what does this mean for higher education? I mean, I think going after sort of the, you know, political correctness mm-hmm. on campus and the liberal universities and all that just seems so obvious in a way to kind of like throw red meat to the base and and just finding some way to sort of stick it in their eye. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, eventually like that gets, if that is, if that amplifies what's happening at the state level, like they just start to degrade as, mm-hmm. as institutions that can really be what they need to be. Professors leave, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then the students start to leave and, um, you know, I think, and then I think once you lose that, I don't know how you get it back, right? Yeah. You know, and so, so I have concerns for you know again all the football, the places where all these football, uh, all football teams play. Northwestern played Ohio State close. Yes, yeah, we should yeah. we should talk about that game. But I yeah. would say, and I, I mean, we can get more yeah. into this, but this is a thing I've heard higher ed people talk mm-hmm. about, and that I had not really thought much about because I've had sort of a broader lens lately, but. Immediately before, during, and after the election, mm. campuses, especially the campuses people pay attention to, have not not played into that stereotype. I mean, yeah, I am getting very close to a false equivalence of both sides, and mm. college students are sometimes over the top, and it's fine for Trump to attack them, which is not yeah. what I'm saying at all. But if you're looking for places where, like, that those politically correct sentiments that he's attacked have really come out vis-a-vis Trump specifically, and not just in the college campus way that they always do, I mean, they are, like, perfect antagonists. 
Um, And after the election, that has not changed. If anything, that has gotten stronger. Yeah. And it kind of, I mean, politically, it's it's hard, right? Because Mm -hmm. you sort of find yourself in this, don't, you know, don't make the white people angry because they'll vote the wrong way Mm -hmm. and everything will go become terrible. But the thing that makes them angry, you think is unreasonable that they should be angry and you really believe in your principles. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm having a hard time kind of. I, I feel like my kind of instincts and, and knowledge base when it comes to just politics are like mm-hmm. not very good, honestly. Like mm-hmm. I probably just kind of don't know enough and don't have enough like theory. And so I don't think anybody knows anything yeah. anymore. Honestly. I guess that's true. I guess I'm in good company. I mean, yeah, you know? I, I would say I, I think I know a decent amount about it because right. I work and socialize with a lot of people who talk a lot about yeah. politics. But like, I don't know. None of us saw this coming. Well, I mean, like, it's right. No one prepared for Trump, including Trump, apparently. Right. right? Well, you that's know? the thing. So, I mean, so, there's this whole so, like, if you got out yeah. of your liberal bubble meme, right. which I believe to a degree, I think... I bought into it a little bit more when I went back and read some of ours and many, many other people's previous coverage where Clinton winning was not just treated as likely, but as inevitable right. in a way that reads a little, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, it was never a sure thing. And we we certainly mm-hmm. approached it and not just sort of the left leading media, but the media as a whole certainly approached this as like, well, obviously, Clinton is going to be the next president. Mm-hmm. Um but Trump was surprised. Trump supporters were surprised. Right. You know, my people I know who live in much Trumpier areas of the country were surprised. Like, I don't think there's anything to this idea that if you know Trump supporters, you were not right. shocked. Well, and it might just be, you know, I think I certainly, you know, the one person who came out of this looking really good was Nate Silver, you know, who was in this huge argument the week before the election with, you know, Ryan but Nate Grimm Silver and was all wrong. No, but I mean, but he like, was less he wrong was than less, everybody else. Yeah, but, but like, but he was still but, real. Yeah, wrong. I'm not sure, but I think ultimately he was mostly not wrong, though, right? So because what he was what he was saying in the week before the so you know, like HuffPost came out with this big mm-hmm. thing, sort of denouncing him and sort of saying, you know, our model says you know the numbers say it's 98 percent for mm-hmm. Clinton, and and Silver's only saying 65 percent, and that's because he's sort of playing with the numbers and he's biased. And you know what he was saying before, and then he said it again afterwards, was like, look, the 35 percent is for Trump is the risk that there is systematic error in the polls. Mm-hmm. And they could be in either direction. Mm-hmm. So there could be, you know, he basically said there's an equal chance of a Clinton landslide as there is of Trump winning. Right. Um, and so, you know, when you say 35% chance that that Trump wins and he wins by winning five swing stakes by one percentage point each, mm-hmm. that's how, the, that's yeah. the 35%, that, yeah. right? You know, like that's how you get there. I mean, was it the time said it was like 175,000 votes nationally? I think it's split among Michigan, which was like certainly tight. No, yeah. I think it was it was in the six figures, but it was, oh, was a very it, it was yeah. very low six figures. Yeah. I mean, it was like yeah, it wasn't a ton it among was, several I mean, states. Michigan's margin was I think Florida, ridiculous. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, one more were all. I don't think Michigan has been called officially. Right, so they're all within one um, percent. New Hampshire was yeah. called like Tuesday. I mean, yeah. yeah, they're not they're not done yet. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's that's you're right. That's. The national polls were right, other than the very crucial fact of who wins. Right. I mean, he said that he said that they were actually the national polls were closer this time than they were last time. Yeah. That they actually missed more four years ago because they missed the Obama victory, the size of the Obama victory four years ago. Um, yeah. One thing. I mean, one one data change I hope comes out of this. We had talked and written a little bit the week before mm-hmm. the election internally about the lack of good state polls and how, in some ways, the poll aggregation movement has been a tragedy of the mm-hmm. commons for good polling. Mm-hmm. Add on to that that news organizations have fewer resources than they used to, and like doing your own good poll is just less attractive for a lot yeah. of reasons. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think four years from now, I will not pay as much attention to the national polls as I did this time. And I know we all right. say, you know, it's the states that really count, but like, yeah, no, but now, but but right. I, you know, like 
it, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, just look at those Big Ten. We will only pull. Like, why doesn't the Big Ten do a poll? The Big Ten could do a great poll. Yeah, there's some there's some hot take about college football conferences to be written here. You know, mm-hmm. something about the Big Ten and the SEC versus the Pac-10 and someone else. You know, I I don't have the wherewithal or the sort of the stamina to kind of actually do it. But someone I will, could write I will it. try to formulate this you take know, in my head by the yeah, end of the podcast. I think there's. Um, I think it's my, my gut tells me that there is a a hot college football Trump. Big take, you know, take to be to be had there. So well, uh, you know, you look at the victories yeah. because that's uh, that's one of those things that apparently can move the needle, especially when you're talking about such. Oh, close, really? Okay. Um, whether the team wins or loses is one of those weird. But like, Michigan we, lost. We can't explain how people vote. Things. Michigan lost. Woohoo! After the election, yes. right? So, so that can't explain it. It's before the election, though, because it makes right. people anti. It makes people more anti-incumbent if they right. lose. That's my um, point. Michigan yeah. didn't lose. Didn't lose to Iowa until this. Yeah, Michi- Michigan. So. can't. I don't think Michigan can necessarily right. explain. Penn State. Penn State's been doing okay, though, right? You know, I mean, you know, if you'd asked me this the week weekend before I actually kept right. an eye on all of this in all of the swing states Wisconsin for this exact reason and now it's out of my head yeah. um we played Wisconsin okay they won mm. we played them okay um Ohio State flat in Nebraska so that can't have anything yeah to do that was with crazy it. um yeah Nebraska came into that game ranked like seventh or something and they lost speaking 60, about, speaking 62 of a to game, three. yeah so speaking of a game that makes it makes me morally uncomfortable with my support of college football mm. did you watch it no the Nebraska quarterback went down, was on his back on oh, the sidelines yeah. for like out cold. Yeah. One of those, yeah. they stopped the game and everybody just kind yeah. of stood there and held their breath uh, right. moments, which is chilling. Right. Yeah. The like, oh, am I in the stadium for the inevitable on-field death that's going to happen in a major televised football game at some yeah. point? And I've, I've been at one of those and it's yeah. awful. It's, I mean, there just yeah. is no getting back into the mood after that. Um, right. It was it was hard to watch and one of those that made me be like, you know, this is a hard this is a hard sport to be a fan of. So I was on a panel uh, on Monday, Monday afternoon of this week, uh, which was sort of what a a long scheduled panel about what does the new administration mean for uh, higher education? Uh, It was me. Uh, Terry Hartle, who is the head lobbyist for the uh, American Council for Education, which is the main higher ed lobbying group here in Washington. Um, David Cleary, who is the uh, essentially like number one person in the Lamar Alexander office. Lamar mm-hmm. Alexander is the chairman of the help committee and I think will continue to be chairman of the help committee going forward. Um, and then Lindsey Burke, who is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Um, so how was that? It was super weird. That was a super different panel yeah. than you thought you were going to have. It was super weird. Bet. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it was, it was strange. Mm-hmm. I will say this. And it was really, you know, like my parents have been emailing me like, what's it like in Washington? And I, I always tell people like, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's just, there's all these little worlds in Washington. I don't really, I don't have mm-hmm. some like God's eye view of Washington, D.C., even though. We're recording this like 300 yards from the White House, which is which is which side is not, note, yeah, not kind Washington. of cheesy, you know. Um, yeah, it was weird. So it was sort of like like the other three people were having the same conversation that uh, you would have had if Jeb Bush had just been elected president. Like we were just, it was this kind of whole conversation about student loan interest rates, you know. And, mm. and I mean, so so to be clear, uh, uh, the Department of Education issued a lot of regulations in 2016 that are going to be repealed right away. Yeah, so do we want, yeah. I mean, since we're here to talk yeah. about higher ed policy, I guess yeah. we should probably talk about higher ed policy. Yeah, let's get minute. into it. But tell, yeah. me, tell me about the panel and yeah, then we so, can back up. So, um, and so, so David Cleary said this very clearly, you know, like, I mean, this was, so I, I got to go first and mm-hmm. um, they said, what do you think? And I said, well, 
you know, maybe we'll have a restoration of the FEL program because that was the official uh, position of the Republican Party in their platform over the summer. And it's a lot of money. And I think this will be a, a, a target rich environment for big business interests. And so maybe the banks will come back and try to get the FEL program going again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. Um, and then uh, let's see. Uh, what was two? Uh, oh, I said, so, you know, uh, we're going to completely get rid of the gainful employment regulations and it'll be uh, free reign for for-profit colleges. And then I made a snarky comment about Donald Trump being the owner of a fraudulent for-profit college. Um, and then three, I said, we're going to get rid of the Office of Civil Rights and, uh, uh, you know, basically make campus better for rapists. And then I made a snarky comment about Donald Trump being a sexual predator. Except not really. This sounds like tons yeah, of fun. Yeah, except it wasn't snarky because yeah. I don't think any of it's funny, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, like that's the world we're living in. So I got to go first. And then there was this sort of like five seconds of dead air. And then they're like, okay. And then they started talking about student loan interest rates. And that was sort of most of the rest of the conversation. We never talked about OCR and Title IX again. It never came up. Um, you know, there was just sort of, you know, just talking points about, about not victimizing for-profit colleges and how we're going to do that. And then it was kind of, you know, HEA reauthorization, yada, yada, yada. So I mean, I nothing I mean, can throw people off their script on higher ed talking points. I, I guess that's about. right. Like, I mean, and I, I have had, I've not had as true. many conversations of that yeah. kind as I probably will. But yeah. I mean, if I think, if when I think about Trump's agenda on higher ed, which is a thing that came up almost mm. not at all during the campaign, we talked right. very briefly at the very last minute about his, very brief at the very last minute um, student debt proposal. But it did not, I mean, even by the standards of 2012, the vast gap in how much it was talked about mm-hmm. on the left and the right uh, mm-hmm. after the primaries was was very evident. Right. Um, but there is like a little bit of a Trump agenda. And then there is the like House Republican, Senate Republican agenda, right. such as it is in higher ed, which has not been totally... I'm going to say something stupid and forget that there's like a reauthorization bill that I have not mm. read or something, but it has at least not gotten a lot of play. And so I guess the question mm. is whether Trump is going to sort of drive this train by repealing the regulations and executive orders he wants to mm. repeal and then pursuing his like very oddball interest on the right in student loan repayment plans. I mean, he is yeah. maybe the only Republican right. ever who is like, IBR is great. Let's make IBR more generous. The problem with income-based repayment is people's payments are too high. It was very strange. I mean, um, I made the point Sort of, of the to panel. flashback to our conversation with Jason last week. Like, this is very... He's in favor last of... Last month. This is very, very unusual. Refinancing. I right. made the point in the panel. I said the I said he's in favor of Hillary Clinton's worst idea, which is spending massive billions of dollars on a kind of ineffective refinancing scheme that would mostly affect like benefit medical students and law students. Right. Um, so, so maybe, I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, the thing I'm most interested in is the fate of stuff like this, because it is, I spent a lot of time during the campaign writing about Ivanka Trump and these are sort mm. of Ivanka Trump ideas and that they right. are for the audience of young affluent women that she caters to. Mm. They have like a liberal cast in the sense of these are things that people who are generally more liberal are mm-hmm. more concerned about. Um, her childcare stuff is the same way. It's not necessarily a liberal solution to the problem, mm-hmm. but it's a solution to a problem that is really more perceived as a problem on the left than on the right. right. And it's like not a solution that is necessarily wise or good or that anyone is saying would be effective. It's, you know, but it just seems to come out of nowhere. Um, and I'm really curious about what happens with these kind of ideas. If there are pressure groups that try to engage with them and try to say, you know, mm-hmm. you had the right idea. Let's try and shape this into something that more resembles even like a more liberal proposal. Or if it just sort of gets subsumed 
and lost in the Republican Senate, um, you know, their ideas right. for, for AGA. I mean, so it's uh, the I guess the argument against refinancing some of this stuff is that it's domestic spending. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I assume what we're going to get is a replay of 2001, sort of like we're going to get a huge tax cut and mm-hmm. we're going to get a big increase in military spending. And all of a sudden deficits aren't mm-hmm. going to matter anymore because there's no hypocrisy more fundamental and predictable than the Republican Party's hypocrisy when it comes to deficits. They don't care about deficits. They never have. Um, as soon as they have an opportunity to grab money from the government for the stuff they want, which is military spending and tax cuts for the rich and corporations, they will take it w- with a degree of unrestraint that the Democrats themselves never, ever uh, 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 show. Um, bracket, rant ended. Um, so, but but that squeezes the budget. Some, like, there's got to be some limit, right? You know, you can't right. run the deficit back up to a trillion dollars right away. You know, I mean... Again, you, presumably, presumably, right? So, uh, caveat to all things that seem unthinkable um, in this discussion. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done predicting anything. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, so, I guess like. So, how much money is there left for right. for you know, loan refinancing or whatever? I just I, I wonder. Well, I also just fell into the trap that I constantly criticize among education policy people, mm-hmm. that I suspect is common to many sort of sector policy wonks of all types, which mm-hmm. is to assume that like, of course, there will be something done on higher education. And I would like to rescind that. I think there is a very good chance that nothing gets done. There is a lot of other stuff that Trump wants to do, that a Republican Congress wants to do. Probably they repeal gainful employment. That seems like a very easy thing that would zip through both chambers and Trump would sign and it would be over with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it took nine years and an emergency to reauthorize No Child Left Behind, which was clearly limping along on its last legs and was a total disaster. I mean... HGA has nothing like that. Although it is maybe I mean, loan it is, forgiveness. It, it's it's something for the committees to do, right? And they they're there. I mean, mm-hmm. so you always so the I like think they'll the, have a lot of hearings. The motive force is always like yeah. there are people employed in these committees who right. don't have anything to do other than sort of move ahead with some mm-hmm. of these big things, and it's definitely time. Um, you know, and I, so the pro HGA reauthorization argument is that uh, begins with ESSA, right? The right. fact that. Um, uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Murray worked together mm-hmm. um, to forge a bipartisan compromise and get it through a Republican House. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know yet if Patty Murray is going to be the ranking member on the Health Committee. It could be Bernie Sanders, right? Am I, am I saying that? If I missed I anything? have paid very little attention yeah, to so, Democratic machinations in Congress. So presumably so if it's no Bernie idea. Sanders, then no. But if it's Murray and Alexander, then maybe they could sort of do that whole thing again. Um, you could at least sort of, I mean, the last ATA reauthorization took five years, mm-hmm. right? So they started in 2003 and they finished in 2008 and I think it was enacted early 2009. Right. Um, so you can see like a serious effort to kind of get things going, um, starting. And then, you know, because a lot of federal higher education policy is finance related, you can do it in budget reconciliation, right. Right. which is how the 2010 student loan reforms happened right. through the same budget re- reconciliation that we used to pass Obamacare. So... Um, that could happen quickly if if we're just focusing on loan policy, I guess. Um, so, but yeah, I think, I mean, on for-profit colleges. So one thing, you know, again, one thing David Cleary said was they're going to use the Congressional Review Act, which everyone needs to understand now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only been used once before. It was passed in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a way for Congress to... Uh, it, it's supposed to be, it's a way for Congress to stop outgoing administrations from passing regulations at the last minute. Yes. Yeah. So any regulation passed within, and this is like, it turns out to be the crucial distinction, 60 congressional days of whenever uh, they can. It's like dog years. Yeah, dog yeah, years yeah. and right, right. 
So they can basically say, we're rescinding those regulations, and if the president agrees, not only are the regulations rescinded, mm -hmm. and there's actually a good piece in the New York Times about this that went up this afternoon, the department can't can't regulate again on the same issue, mm. which I don't even quite understand how you can... Ever? That I, I need to that figure that out. That doesn't seem like... I don't see possible. how you can that's constrain like future departments from doing yeah. stuff, but but that's part of it. Um, I mean, so I, I, guess, I guess they could. So I asked someone in the, in the department, I said, what, what's, when did the clock start? Like, what, which regulations? And they said, anything after April of this year. So every, because of the 60 congressional days, there haven't been that many congressional days that have happened because Congress hasn't been in session because of the election. Question. Was this yeah. when they were published in the Federal Register? Is this when they took effect? I don't understand the Because legality. that's a really key distinction on a lot of these. But the, pers the person I asked definitely is in a position to know the answer. Mm -hmm. And the person said April or May. Everything since April or May. Which means not so the teacher prep regulations, right. gone. Um, and that's totally on the administration, by the way, because they sat on this for five years. I, I covered that initial rule. They sat on them for five years. Which was sat in five OMB, years and three jobs ago for me. And they let... They sat on there for five years and they waited to the last minute. And so it is 100% the Obama administration's fault that they didn't pass them until they were inside these windows. And so they're going to throw that out. Um, but so the uh, defense to repayment rules. Mm -hmm. Now, defense to repayment doesn't go away because that's, that's in the law. Yeah. Right. So you can still apply for it. But they would have to roll back on it all over again. But yeah, but no one had ever really gotten it before now. Um, all of the ESSA regulations shifting into K-12 happy hour for a moment. Right? Oh, man. You know? Yeah. So, so those, I mean, and that wasn't their fault because ESSA wasn't passed until uh, it was December of last year. Right. So. Um, January. It was signed in January. I think it, it was finally was signed in January. Yeah. Passed so, in you know, they, so that was a huge effort to kind of regulate around ESSA and. That stuff is inside the window. So so I think it is going to be a, a, a kind of unprecedented kind of culling of regulations, with which the Obama administration was very aggressive in using because they couldn't get stuff through Congress. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the comeuppance of the executive orders and regulations and all the warnings mm -hmm. that, you know, this could just go away. And yep. I mean, DACA is certainly the most obvious example of that in terms of things that colleges are at least low-key worried about. Um, right. That came up also. Yeah. Like, I would... I know at the time people there was some reluctance for people to register in it and do it because you're creating this federal database of undocumented immigrants that just exists out there. Mm. And that is a fear that has certainly been proven correct. I mean, right. I don't think anybody at that moment foresaw Donald Trump and a lot of people, including me, I think were sort of like, oh, you know, like like anybody's actually gonna revoke this once it's in effect and yeah. these people have jobs and you know, are working legally and paying taxes and all this and then we're born in America you know we're bride to America's kids like no one actually will do it but I if anybody would do it it would be Donald Trump so there are a little bit uh, right. of chickens I mean, there are some chickens roosting here sure. that was that came up in this this panel also and that was a question from one of the reporters was mm -hmm. should students be afraid and again it was like five seconds of silence and yeah. then I raised my hand I'm like yes obviously <laughs> right I mean what why would they not be afraid given what just happened. And um, and also like what's been going on this week with the sort of crazy, apparently the Trump administration is already in like the downfall bunker mode of just loyalists and sycophants kind of around them and, and sort of like purges. It's been eight days since the election. It does. It does. It feels like it's been a hundred years, right? It's been or at least a month. Like they're not even like in charge yet, and they're already riven by bizarre like court politics. So I think I mean it's sort of fascinating to watch, but I also think this is actually a significant point because 
getting stuff done relies often on a continuity of people and goals mm. to get the stuff done. And Trump went through, you know, how many cam- how many campaign managers, right. campaign CEOs in like five to six months. He has apparently turned over a transition team, essentially, in terms of the number of people who've been forced out and brought in in a week, effectively. I mean, you know, you do need like... Even assuming at some point someone gets on the on the domestic policy council who is interested in these issues, yeah. like they have to hang around long enough to see something through, and so I think that really is a case for. I mean, I'm not going to say what we'd be talking about in six months, but I I think it is more likely to be HGA and the Ryan budget than it is Trump's odd student debt repayment plan, yeah, um, no, I think or that's anything right. like that. I, I, that I think I think on the low right. the lower tier issues and education for him is certainly a lower tier issue. Congress is going to end up driving this bus. And then there's just the sort of weird question of who's the secretary of education and yeah, um, which I spent a lot of time today on. Right. Um, and no one knows, no one knows anything is the right. short answer, but. I agree with you, by the way, about OCR. I mean, I I am sort of so I think I said on this podcast a while back that I was shifting to a new beat that was essentially Hillary Clinton's agenda, mm-hmm. which like yeah. obviously has evaporated. Right. Um, so I will be continuing to do some education stuff, but also mm-hmm. sort of some of the trying to turn some of that into like gender and the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and so sort of keeping an eye on what happens with OCR yeah. um, and with some of the similar efforts in other parts of the government that were sort of not perceived together, but the military sexual assault stuff was at the same time. I mean, they have Mm. really put a large push on this issue across departments. And I would think with any Republican president, that would be less aggressive just in terms of views of what the federal government should and should not be doing. I cannot imagine with a straight face anyone from the Trump administration trying to pursue a case against a college for being too light on sexual harassment. I mean, it it literally, like, I... uh, and I would not say this about most people. I cannot imagine doing that without laughing. So they can't actually get rid of the Department of Education, but they can get rid of the Office of Civil Rights. Right? Or they can so, flip it and continue and use it to pursue colleges for uh, abridging the civil rights of men. And I think that's a right. No, I mean, so so my colleague Alexander Holt actually just published a piece today a couple hours ago on uh, or of conservatives um, or of- on uh, our website here at New America uh, mm-hmm. at Central.org, uh, making exactly this case, basically laying out how they could. That his case, which I think is pretty persuasive, is that the Dear Colleague letters that the um, that, that one the Obama administration used the Dear Colleague letter process to do this, which is mm-hmm. a not not a regulatory process right. in the sense that there's a chance for public comment. They, they just send a letter in the mail. They just have to write another letter. That's and all they have the to letter do. just says some stuff, and the only way to really kind of push back on it is to uh, file a lawsuit after you've been found in violation of it, and so. And that they really opened up the definition of what harassment is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it doesn't take, it's it's fairly straightforward to to take the idea of harassment and turn it on its head from an ideological standpoint and mm-hmm. use that as your vehicle to, quote, crack down on political correctness. So I, like, I think between, between sort of using the civil rights process in kind of an affirmative way to poke colleges mm-hmm. for their liberalism and then not using it anymore to uh, uh, prod colleges to uh, address sexual violence. I think like that's going to be the story about the Department of Education. It's just going to be a bunch of, it's going to be, I don't, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. Um, it's going to be a culture story, not mm-hmm. an education story. Yeah, I, compl- I completely yeah. agree with that for a couple of reasons. I mean, A, the education department's hands, even if Clinton were coming in, are significantly tied on K-12 relative to mm. Arnie Duncan's. I mean, mm. ESSA really took away a lot of the power. Right. I mean, we really only had two, like, majorly significant 
education secretaries, right. Arnie Duncan and, and Margaret Spellings. And I, sh- I should lump John yeah. King in there as well because he's had stuff to do. Yeah. But historically speaking, I would say all, my, all the tools Arnie Duncan used are gone. They would be gone no matter who was in office. I mean, they they really are constrained in what they can do. So that knocks out basically all of K-12 as a – I guess, although I guess now they have to replace the ESSER regulations, which I had not thought about. Um, yeah, I guess if they, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what that means actually. Yeah, they, I, I have not followed that if closely they enough. Heal them because they actually have to have some regulations to just explain how it works. Yeah, they, I, I mean, those regulations are mostly, from what I remember, sort of definitional. And mm-hmm. certainly definitions can be yeah. controversial, as in the case of gainful employment. But I mean, this, they, the they were ar- not like the most cutting edge the of The stuff around, like the substantive stuff around, um, what do you call it, the thing where you have to make sure that your spending is equal. I say that I wrote a whole article about it uh, in my column, and now I forget what it's called. But supplement not spent. No, 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 that's not it. You know what I'm talking about. I do, and I'm on not enough okay. sleep right now. I have lost my short-term memory completely. That's <laughs> why I was so late. Um, but that, that, that's not going to happen. So, the, like the, the stuff, the the. But here's the thing. I mean, in fairness, it wasn't clear that was going to happen under a Clinton administration either. Right? No. So, so there was a there was a very plausible Hillary, President Hillary Clinton. Uh, scenario in which the Department of Education also stopped regulating around ESSA. Right, they wouldn't yeah. repeal the regulations, but they would just sort of do the bidding of the teachers unions and the interest groups that said, don't really push us in all this accountability stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah. think always the best, except for those few heady weeks when it seemed like Democrats might take all mm. of Congress in the the aftermath of the Trump mm. tape, um, I, I think always the most activist case scenario for Hillary Clinton's education department right. was essentially status quo. Yeah. Um, holding the line on the new ESSA regulations, holding the line on gainful employment. She certainly had an ambitious higher ed plan, but it all required Congress, and you would not really get to the departmental yeah. rulemaking stage of that, even optimistically, like, mm-hmm. till 2018-19. I mean, this was not, like, no matter who the president was, the next education secretary was not going to be imbued with, like, massive power and, and right. endless opportunities. But Trump especially, I mean, they're – I just I, I I agree. I think OCR. I think OCR, and whether it is um, sort of withers on the vine in the way that mm. OCR did during the Bush administration in terms of the amount of resources and funding and sort of attention paid to it, or whether it is the model of the DOJ uh, Civil Rights Division during the Bush administration, which was flipped on its head mm. and used to sort of prosecute voter fraud in the sense of Not the Republican fraud. sense of voter yeah. fraud. <laughs> I think is a really, really interesting question. I would lean toward Die on the Vine. Censor voter fraud, yeah. Because the other thing is, and this gets back to the chaos with the transition, they have to staff this somehow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I like I I understand in a I I see the the logic of the I'm gonna consolidate around my loyalists, but that's like fifteen people, right? I mean, like the Trump campaign was never very many people. No. And then you throw out all the Chris Christie people, which just happened like three days ago because Chris Christie prosecuted Jared Kushner's father and just 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 sit for a minute and think about that as the thing that matters now in terms of how this was my the one most long powerful game. nation in the world is going to be governed in the future. This was my one long game conspiracy theory during the campaign, by the way, and I have stood by it, is that really? it was all a Jared Kushner plot to, and this is not original to me, I read yeah. it somewhere crazy on the internet, but the idea that this was a Jared Kushner plot to humiliate Chris Christie, apparently Turns out you're totally right about that. his father was like carried yeah. out 
many times he had the VP job dangled in front of him. He yeah. had the transition taken away from him. Like they right. seem to just want to loosen in the football him as much as humanly possible. Jared Kushner, up until this point, famous only for establishing the market price for buying your way into Harvard, which two and a half million dollars apparently. I've, and so I always uh, forget that. That's such a great higher ed fact. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's, but you know, it's, it's good. Uh, up until now, I'm like, good for him because I have always wondered, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, if you just took the price mm-hmm. caps off, the implicit price caps off tuition, what would it cost to just buy your way in? And the answer in like 10 years ago was $2.5 million, apparently. Um, it's, I assume it's more now. Yeah, you know? well, like 15. He's but I, I assume yeah. it's something still. You know, I don't think it's not. I don't think that there is like, I assume there's a price out there. Yeah, so apparently now. Um, but but so there's, you know, you, okay, but then they also weren't planning on winning and then they just threw half their people out. And and like, so the, 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 the thing that makes it hard to predict is that it seems like as of right now, and this may be obsolete by the time this podcast is posted the day after tomorrow, is that the like the dominant frame for being in or out is not ideological, but just how much you make liberals angry. You know, yeah. it's sort of like how crazy you are. Yes. And, and what's complicated is that there are different ways to be crazy. Yes. Right? So you, you, you could end, you could have a couple people, like we're talking about, oh, well, maybe the Secretary of State will be John Bolton, or maybe it'll be Rudy Giuliani, both of whom will make liberals really unhappy, but for very different reasons, right? right? So you know we, we I mean? were talking about this internally, and I'm going to steal somebody else's sure. line, but like Obama had a team of rivals in like the good sense for everybody, like, you know, the yeah. ideal of the Doris Kearns Goodwin, like, everybody is competing to mm. be the best at achieving the same goals. I feel like Trump has a team of rivals in the sense of, like, no one has the same, no one is on the same page. Right. They are on the same page in their, like, personal loyalty to Donald Trump. But there is no ideological consistency. And that is how we get to Michelle Rhee and Eva Moskowitz being floated today as secretaries of education. And the only frame where that makes sense is like, who is going to piss off liberals? Some right. liberals, not all. Right, hashtag, right. That's, that's not all liberals. That's my point, like, right? You know, so, oh, maybe Ben Carson, maybe Michelle Rhee. Those are not this, those are not like two yeah. flavors of the same thing. They're completely different. Or the, the guy who has been mentioned, I was trying to pull up his name on my phone because I can't remember it and it will be embarrassing. But there is someone who has been mentioned who is a education think tank person who I'm not super familiar with, whose main thing is mostly like the liberalism of the history curriculum, which is a fine, like if you were going to be a conservative pundit on education, that is a super rich vein to mine, but it is not something that has any bearing on national policy. Like even if you thought the nationalizing of the history curriculum was happening, which it was not like not letting this thing happen that no one else in government would also let happen is not a very compelling agenda as education secretary. I feel feel pretty confident that, like, right now, as we speak, on November 15th, 2016, the sort of character of American government has never been more subject to random chance. I I mean, things were weird in, like, the 1880s. Okay. Um, right. you know, I mean, if, I, I think I don't know if, enough about how the patronage machines If that's the only concession worked, I have to make, yeah. I feel okay about that. Right? I, I just you know? am saying I mean, on uncorruption and patronage, that is a thing where I am not comfortable saying anything farther away than the past 60, 70 years. But I agree with you on that. Sure. That corruption. Fact. Yeah, yeah. No, I think people have no idea how corrupt government used to be. Yeah. And, and, but just in terms of like roll of the dice, randomness, like mm-hmm. everything is just who knows because – 
it's just a sort of a strange group of like people making decisions for weird reasons really quickly and and just the mechanics of everything will just force them to decide stuff. Although the president like did tweet last night that he is the only one who knows who the finalists are because apparently he's still running a fucking reality <laughs> television show even though he ran the, ran the election. If it were a reality, reality television show, we would know who the finalists were, which would be interesting. I would watch America's Next Top Cabinet. I'm just saying. If only to watch Michelle Rhee and Eva Moskowitz but go he, up against the like other right, random guess, okay. like education secretary people. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, and I think it's one that really plays out. I mean, like, there are more important cabinet departments in terms of the direction mm. of the nation, like whether Chris Kobach gets to be attorney general or not. Oh my God. It's like a crucially important question. Yes. Who gets education secretary? Even I am not going to say is a crucially important question for the yeah. future of America. But it sort of shows up even more in these issues he clearly doesn't care very much about. Right. Because that's where you really get the like, who's to say? It's just literally a grab bag of names who have not explicitly said but even below that, like you have to staff up below the secretary as, you know, right. at a place that has turned significantly sure. yeah. with the Obama administration. And like one thing I try to explain to people is I follow a lot of education policy thinkers from all sides of the aisles. I do not think there was anyone on my Twitter timeline who was pro-Trump, many of whom were vocally, vocally anti-Trump in a way that a lot of other conservative policy people were not, mm -hmm. some of whom were so far as even to be like grudgingly pro-Hillary as a reason for being anti-Trump. Right. I mean, I don't know. I then, then you get the dilemma of you, like, go and do your job and try and work around the margins and accomplish a few of your goals. and Or do you just say, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely not. And the price being put on loyalty is really a factor here. Like, there are a lot of smart people who a normal Republican administration would hire – who have been pretty vocally anti-Trump for months. Yeah, so what does that do you just kind and, of... And, like, right. conservatives in education, especially in K-12, like, mm. do buy into the civil rights frame. And how are you a person who mm. buys into the George W. Bush, like, education right. is the social justice issue of our time? I don't know how many of those people are left. Like, how do you... Well, but they're around. I mean, when people sort of are floating names yeah. for other cabinets, it's George W. Bush people. And it's like, I can't I imagine mean, anyone What is the education. floating process? When, like, when it's like, oh, Michelle Reed and Eva Moskowitz were floated. Like, literally, what is the chain of events that leads you and I to be talking about this right now like where does it start i honestly think so i think this is important i think a lot of this is wishful thinking essentially right. either on the part like if i were a person at politico as people at politico are right now tasked with doing this right what you do is you call up well-networked lobbyists mm -hmm. you call up people on i mean basically i would call up your panel mm -hmm. from earlier this week because those were people right. who are well-networked sure. and who would generally talk to me on or off the record and say like who do you think? And that is such an open-ended question. Like, People just make stuff up at that no, point. No, they totally right? yeah. are. Especially, like, Politico's list was excellent. I'm not going to, like, undercut. That mm -hmm. A lot of hard work went into that. But you also read that list. There were 12 candidates listed for agriculture secretary. Yeah. And, like, I read this and I clearly was, like, they were just calling people who are well-networked in the agriculture world mm -hmm. and were in the Republican world and were on the Trump campaign. And, like, they are throwing out random names of, like, yeah, this dude. Like, if Clinton yeah. had won and somebody had called me and said who would be a good education secretary, like, I would have ideas. And I think that's about the level. Anyone who says they're super well sourced in the Trump campaign, yeah, no, is lying. I participated in one of these surveys actually, like eight years ago. Like somebody yeah. was running one of them, and they would ask yeah, me. These, and, yeah, and, but like the thing was, I had no idea. No, but they were asking me. And I'm sure me, I called like, you about so, stuff like this, yeah. like during the Obama like, why administration. Why would I know honestly, the answer to that like, question? Was, I had like, no idea. I did a lot of stuff for Romney that never yeah. ran, and basically what you did was you like ran down his list of donors, you called mm. them, you called people who knew them, and you just, like, kept calling outward to, like, mm. try and find someone who could speak to it. But you were, like, seven degrees away from their thinking. And so, right. I mean, this sounds conspiracy-minded, and I don't mean it that way, but I think a lot of these names that are out there are literally just, like, 
somebody called a Republican person known for that issue and they were like, hey, you know, I would really like, like, I would yeah. love to see Michelle Rhee as Secretary of Education or whatever. And so they said it and then that gets the name. Right. In, and again, and it, it becomes makes this perfect sense, thing. you know, top five people who make liberals mad on this issue and you, uh, uh, Michelle Rhee, even, it only makes sense if you think of it that way. Right. And right? That, because and, Michelle Rhee is newsflash a Democrat. Right. And I think people just, I mean, I meant to write this take and yeah. did do it and John Shay got there first, but like, I think Rian Moskowitz mostly are out there today because they were the Trump transition spokesman spokesman was asked to name a woman they were considering. And mm. those were the two that he named uh, because gotcha. education is apparently the pink collar job. Sure, of course. Trump's. Yeah, we're going back to that. So I thought this, but then I looked it up. Actually, only two of the like 15 education secretaries have been women. So I had to drop that piece. But I think of it as a Didn't it used a, to be a like the secretary of the women. treasury or something or like the person who signs their name on the money. Is, was a woman for like under Reagan? That was like a kind of a unimportant. That's treasury, but I don't think we've actually ever had a woman treasury secretary. There someone, it's there's like some unimportant job. There's a few where you like that are like for sure like the ghettos of women. Yeah, and we have sort yeah. of broken out of that, and right. Trump is a hundred percent like taking us back. It's like there. interior yeah. education yeah. and commerce, look, maybe. Yeah, there have been a hundred and one people listed in official lists of potential Donald mm. Trump cabinet members. So that's right. where we're at. Seventeen of them have been women. Half of them were either education or interior. Yeah, I'm assuming, I'm assuming the cabinet will be one woman and one person of color. I think um, it might be two or three. I mean, it might be two or three, but that still puts you at, like, George H.W. Bush levels. Like, yeah. that is not good. That is really yeah. not good. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. Somebody like uh, Vox should do some sort of, like, rank the cabinet secretaries in declining, in order of what are the odds that the worst the worst choice will kill you? Like, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, that's interesting. Like, it's basically you know? the order of succession. I'm pretty sure, like, okay. I think that exists. Although DHS is very low down on that list because they were created uh, more recently and I'd probably move them up. Right. Um, just because if you're incompetent, like, that was a job created to stop terrorist attacks right. and yeah. have interagency cooperation. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it clearly is the ones where it's like, oh, like, I don't want to say it's unimportant. I don't want to, like, go on mm-hmm. the record saying education secretary is an unimportant job because clearly it is not. But it is like... It's not as important as Yeah, if, if you know, the, I mean, your frame of importance is right. the cabinet, it is right. not a very important job. Right. Um, what and, is the... What is uh, Kiefer Sutherland? What was he in that show about how he's the lone uh, survivor? I know this, and I've only seen one, one episode. He was the director or the uh, secretary of housing and urban development. Right, so, so they had to pick something... because I've never heard anyone say with so much passion, you were the secretary of housing right. and urban oh, okay, development. Because yeah. you knew that they would have to pick something. That, that would be their, like, heuristic, right? Like, it's got to be something obscure that the average viewer didn't even know was a cabinet secretary. Like, it's not going to be the secretary of defense. No. Like, that show wouldn't make sense. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, like that's actually that's a really good I may steal that. That's a really good like framing of that. It's like if if you were in a lone survivor scenario, it's someone where you're like, oh shit, this person cannot yeah. run the government. Like Well that, that's 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 two things though. So like there's the lone survivor secretary, but there's just that in their capacity as that cap- yes. cabinet secretary, what are the chances that they would reduce your life expectancy? I think that's like a one to one. Well, the EPA is off there. I was I was yeah, going right. to say that's like a one-to-one correlation, but actually not not totally. Like right. normally if a Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State became president, yeah. I would be like, yeah, fine. Like you're probably fine. Right. You seem to know what you're doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much those. And it very much is like you can tell they don't know anything about the subject matter and are just like throwing out names. No, again, I think it's like, sort of we. It's I think Michelle of... Reed would maybe take it. I don't, I don't know. She needs a job. Even Moskowitz would not, because if you have right. a long-term view about K-12 education reform, right. you understand that the worst possible thing that can happen to education reform is to become associated with Donald Trump. 
No, like, I, 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 that is a I Venn diagram with literally right. negative overlap. And I say Michelle Rhee is a, a, a Democrat. I don't know if that's still true. I, she, she has apparently she became, like expressed an openness yeah. to working with Republicans. And I've, yeah. I've been interested in like what a rising yeah. star she's become on the right. Because eight years ago, she was Obama's like crazy pick and Arne Duncan right. was the consensus pick. Yeah. Um, I think it's the it's the lawsuits about teacher union dues. A lot of people really only know her anymore for that mm. and for like being hated by the teachers unions and people who right. don't understand that Obama and Duncan were also hated by the teachers unions think this is a like no, reliable position. I was a, I position was a Michelle Reed defender for a long time. I still am like in a certain to a to a substantial degree in the sense not sort of I think she I think she my sense was she was again I've not spoken to her in a long long time. Mm-hmm. Um I interviewed her a couple times early in her job as DCPS uh, uh, chancellor, but my sense is that she was radi- radicalized by the backlash against her, and that really pushed her pretty far right on a bunch of issues to the point where she was functionally kind of more of a Republican than a Democrat in terms of the positions that she took as the head of Students First, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah, I mean, who she yeah. ended up sort of on the dais with and the causes that she ended up supporting. Yeah. But, but you know, I also, I also and I and I am happy to make this argument think that if you go back and actually look at the substance of what everyone argued about when she was DCPS chancellor at the height of her infamy, Mm -hmm. she was right about everything. Like all the things that she wanted to do that people were mad about, she did and were were a good idea and were continued by her successor, Kaya Henderson, who also deserves a lot of credit. Mm -hmm. And the school system is much, much better off. And I say that as a a person who had uh, his child in the school system for a couple of years um, yeah, this, this is not a thing I can yeah. really weigh on. I think she predated me here in D.C. Yeah. by like six to eight months, uh, much like right. HEA reauthorization. It was one of those things that was sort right. of done right before I came into this world. But so well, if she becomes OK, so well, if she becomes the secretary of education, then I'm ready to write that. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited I'm ready, for I'm ready to write that Michelle Rhee yeah, episode okay. because right. given my prediction record lately, yeah. she will 100%. But also, I don't think there's any way that's actually happening. I don't, I don't think there's any way that's actually happening. I think I think no she's way. a long. So what I was. I got lost on the way to this point, but yeah. I think she's a long shot who got elevated because they were specifically asked about women. I don't think she is the front. Runner. I think it's a, I think, I mean, if I had to just guess, I think it's probably like a Rod Page, a conservative person of color, right? Who you can mm-hmm. sort of. Nobody know? on the list. There's no one on the list. So, yeah. I've, so I've, I have very bad. What about that dude here, from AEI, I'm... Gerard Robinson, who's been like, he, like mm. he was supposed to be on the yeah, my right. panel. And then he draw as the Trump transition person representative, he works for AEI, which mm-hmm. appears to be in the catbird seat right now in terms of, like putting people into the transition. This is why. This is why I wish Andrew were here. I'm curious yeah, what what agenda he, he would be trying to execute. Yeah, no, he I think is seen as sort of wasn't the he the head of head of education in Florida for a while. You know, he must have come to AEI after I left K twelve. I have very yeah. rarely, I've never met him. I've I, never I, I've I mean, never interacted with him. Yeah. I have like heard his name a lot, yeah. and I he was on my list of people who I kept being like, oh, I should set up a call with right. them. And because I was focused very clearly on a Clinton victory and re- misallocated a lot of my time and energy, that never happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's on the list. It's it's a very weird mix. It's like, it's kind of whoever they have around. Jeb Bush would be the ultimate like dominance play. I mean, I keep hearing like <laughs> I keep hearing Tony Bennett, but that Tony Bennett be was awesome. big into Common Core. Like I think Tony Bennett yeah. and Mike Pence are also close, but but or at least know each other from Indiana. But Tony Bennett I would Bennett take Bennett Tony Bennett like, in a minute in that job as a sane person. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's somebody who is like very right. much a plausible. Like I heard right. him and I was like, oh, like somebody said, oh, yeah. I thought he was the front runner, and I was like, I haven't even heard his name, but he is a totally like right. any other situation that is a plausible guy. What Rian and Moskowitz have in common that I think actually got them on that list, other than making liberals angry is they like it they like controversy mm. and i can see that that's as a true. characteristic that really appeals to the trump campaign like they are not people who when a controversy breaks out around them 
back down and have a panel and get everybody together and like try and come like they go out there and have press conferences and get themselves out there and they fight back and that has nothing to do with policy that's a very bad way to pick an Mm -hmm. education secretary but i can see that characteristic as being something that appeals to the trump campaign which says some interesting things about where this might go we live in strange times. We live me. in bizarre times. This is going to be a weird podcast. Like, yes. I feel like this is yeah. one of those where, like, you think a movie is telling one story right. and it's actually telling another story. I, I feel know. like that is where this podcast is going right now. Well, um, thank you for coming over. It's nice to be to make the trip in these these interesting and strange times in the United States of America. We want to do our pop culture minute for a um, minute? Pop culture minute. Go for it. Uh, several things. I've been watching The Queen, which I recommend highly on Netflix as an antidote to the world. This is the big. Th- this is with uh, uh, Claire. Claire Foy. Claire it Foy apparently cost a hundred million dollars to make. Right. It is beautiful. It is like someone was like, I heard it's boring, and I'm like, it's not like exciting. Mm. It is a very nice level of just intellectually engaging enough mm. to like keep you into it, and also it's not going to get your heart rate up uh, at any time. I haven't talked my wife into it. I would watch it because, I, I, but mostly because I th- I like uh, I like uh, Frost Nixon. Isn't this the guy, the Frost Nixon guy? Yeah. So somebody sold it to yeah. and more to my boyfriend one... than to me as like the West Wing of politics or right, the, right, right. the West yeah. Wing of British politics. I was also like, there are beautiful royal people yeah. in it. It's fine. It's yeah. fun. Um, it's I, I recommend. And then also the Helen Mirren one. He did that also right there. Yes, yeah. I so, think so. Which is also a good movie. Yeah. Um. So no, that's the Queen. This is that's the Crown. The Crown. Did the I say the Queen? You said I the meant queen. the Crown. Yeah. I the Queen the is the movie. The Crown the is the Netflix. Yes. Show. I, I, have, I have made this mistake okay. several times. The Crown okay. is very good. It is on Netflix. Yeah. Everyone should watch it. Um. Arrival is the other. Have you seen Arrival? No, I, yet? I'm going to go this weekend. Okay. Well, I won't say anything about it because it is a good movie to go into completely unspoiled. Yeah. I. I'm. I literally all I know is Amy Adams. Something about translation and aliens. That is all, all I knew. Know. That is all I knew going into and it. I'm, it is. I'm staying unspoiled. It is transfixing. Okay. It is also a thing that will make you think about something else. This is for the guy who hours. who did Sicario, right? The yes. director Dennis yeah. Villeneuve, with the director. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a good, he's an interesting director and a good movie. I'm psyched about that. No, so I haven't seen that. I've been I've been watching Westworld. Um, Westworld. Yes, I've also been watching Westworld. Yeah, so which I which I'm very interested by. It feels like a show that was essentially like uh, exists in symbiosis with Reddit. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, it was, was sort of made. Say, I, I was going to say the mirror image of that, which is there is a lot of disdain for Westworld among like progressive women on Twitter, which I like sort of agree with. But then I keep watching it because I like it. I it like has grabbed me in some way. Right. It's definitely a show where like they were like the men of Reddit are our ideal audience for. This. Yeah, no. So, but it's it's like made. I feel like it's made assuming that you're going to spend a lot of time. Like, 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 so the whole reveal from last week, spoiler alert, that Jeffrey Wright was a robot. Like, I just assumed that was true from like week two. Right. Because I was listening to a podcast that was talking about the Reddit thread. But I don't know if I would have figured that out if it wasn't for all that. I absolutely would not have. I think it would have been. Um, yeah, like but I, but but once they said it, I was like, oh yeah. And then when I saw it, and so and then there's the other. Shall we talk about the other like major internet? Like, yeah, the the, the, the dual time, timeline, the, delta, the dual, the dual timeline, timeline thing that that yeah. So I just don't. Pick which up now on, I think is true. Yeah, I'm just, I just don't I, pick up on stuff like that. I at watch all. it assuming that's true. I think this is a show I would enjoy more. Like it is a show yeah. that is very paradoxical and that like it drives you to want to read about it and to read people's theories about it. Right. And I like reading recaps. And so if I'm watching any show, I will read them because I think they're an interesting art form. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's but like, it also like, I am not a deep thinker about the TV mm-hmm. I am watching. And so all of those things would have been like massive knock me over surprises had I not been reading. The only I think reason, it's really like, it's an interesting like yeah. 
case study on the limits of surprise-based storytelling in the internet right. age. Yeah, only it's a J.J. Abrams-produced thing when he's, that's sort of his whole thing, yeah. right? Twists and turns and all yeah. that I mean, the only reason, my wife wants to cut the cord and save us however much our cable package costs. And like, the, I'm like, well, I hear you, but can I watch Game of Thrones or Westworld at nine o'clock on Sunday nights and then get on the internet to read about it the next day? Because if not, I'm not cutting the cord. HBO Now, you can do this. I guess, like uh, yeah, I guess that's right. So maybe um, I can go that way. You or know, steal but someone else's password. But then there's FX. You know, I like a lot of FX shows still. And so some Showtime shows. I don't know. And I'm lazy, you know, and I live a bourgeois lifestyle and I can afford it. So as, as a cord yeah, cutting person, yeah. I think once you start subscribing to enough things to make up for your cord right. cutting, it very quickly becomes like but I will say this. a $15 difference. And you get all the like random right. HTTV crap you can have on in the background. I'm pretty sure so. I watch Netflix more than I watch. I, I think pretty sure I watch Netflix and Amazon Prime together like way more than anything on my cable DVR at this yeah, point. Yeah, that seems fair. You know, that you I mean, say that. Yeah. so, so, uh, you know, I like Westworld. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, Agreed. Uh, I think uh, what's your name who plays Dolores is actually like doing a like really fabulous job. So I, yeah, I had a Westworld question, which yeah. is: Are you more interested in the robots or the people? Uh, knowing that this line is now blurring a little bit, I'm, I, I completely the so the the critique of I don't care about I have no emotional stake in Westworld because it's all about robots. It makes no sense to me. I think oh, I've heard the opposite. I think people generally think the robots are more compelling. Yeah, but yeah, no, I have no. liked the episodes that are like the behind the back of the same machines more. Actually. We're all we're all robots, we, man. <laughs> you know, like there's no difference really. You know, we're all robots until we choose not to be. I don't think. I mean, but I. You're, but, I mean, you're but, right. But here's the I thing: think I, we I actually only had one drink. I think, but, like, I, but I kind of right. believe that, right? You know, so I don't think that there's any difference at all. You know, like Jeffrey Wright, Dolores. Mm. Uh, you know, the man in black, Ed Harris. I like, I, I think that's the point, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 I think that the people who made it are very aware of all that, right? Yes. I think that they, I think that they're just kind of, like, I, I do think it's it's nothing more than all those kind of playing around with twists and turns yeah. and philosophical ideas. But I find that to be very interesting and diverting. And so I like to watch it every week. So I just watched the first yeah. season of True Detective about a month and a half ago. Oh. I may have mentioned this actually last no, month. You didn't, I can't I remember. So. Yeah, yeah, so I, I am sort of, catching up on things I hadn't right. seen in a long time. Um, and that was a very interesting show to watch, not in the hype cycle. I can imagine. I liked it. I sort of, like, after every episode, I watched it with my boyfriend who had watched mm. it the first time through and, like, loved it. Yeah. And was, like, very much caught up with it. And he was like, oh, I'll watch it again. And I sort of, every time, was like, I don't get what the big deal was. Like, I, I mm. like crime. I like crime shows. I yeah. like, this is, a, this is a genre that I'm interested in to begin with. I liked it a lot. I was not, like, so gripped by it that I felt that I could do or think about nothing else. And so, right. and it felt like a lot of those sort of, there were a lot of threads that didn't pay off. And I, that is a, mm. That is a minor fear I have with Westworld is that it is either like super twist based or it's sort of like how long can you like you either you have to give some clues or it's cheap to like do the surprise reveal. I feel true. People are so obsessed now with like tracking the threads that you can't really like I I would not want to be telling a story like that. I think it would be very hard to do right now. True Detective benefited from the sort of the obsessive Internet discussion. Mm -hmm. I feel like Westworld was written with the obsessive Internet discussion in mind ahead of time. Yeah. And I feel like in some ways that's what's changed over the last couple of years in terms of prestige television. People are like, if, it, if it's good, like we have to bet on, bet on it working. Mm-hmm. And if it works, this whole, it, it is going to be deeply entangled mm-hmm. with this community of people on the internet. And so yeah. we'll just just uh, position it that way, start, you know, from the beginning. Whereas, are you going to watch True Detective season two? No. <laughs> so, but like, 
I, I almost, it's like so terrible, but like in a sort of memorable way, it's kind of almost worth watching. Because now that you've seen the first one, and it's, look, there, there are parts of season, True Detective season two that I really have stuck with me, mm-hmm. but it's, it's as bad as everyone said it was. Like amazingly bad. Kind of like, Wow. Like I mean, like you're like, is it this bad on purpose? Like, yeah. it's like no, I, I can't believe how I bad it is. I sadly do not have enough time in my yeah. life right now to watch bad TV for no reason. But yeah. I did have a like synapse, synaptic right. connection on on Arrival and sort of bringing this conversation right. full circle. Is there are stories? I think twisty stories are now better told as movies. That is, it is in mm. some way a twisty okay. plot because you can't. You're in the theater for the whole thing. Yeah, and you can't get out. It and, is, and like even if you realize yeah. it, like there's kind of a right. dawning realization of what's going on. Yeah. And it's not the only movie, but it's a good example of that. And it, but it's so much more impactful when it's like you can't like turn right. to the person next to you and be like, let's pause this and talk for 45 minutes about all the possible things that could be going mm. on with the scenario. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, and I think we, there's so much talk now about how television is better than movies and better stories are yeah. being told. But I think actually, like the twisty, the twisty storytelling is probably mm. better suited for movies. So next month, next that. month we shall we shall discuss. Okay. Well, um, Libby, thanks for coming by. As thank always, you. thank you fun. to John, Amanda, and Simone, our fantastic production crew who at Numerica, who not only produce this podcast but very generously stay here in the office <laughs> until really 5:25 p.m. <laughs> when they probably would rather be at home to their. Uh, uh, families Uh, and to all of you uh, listening out there thank you very much Um, we will see you again next month if there is one bye thank you for listening to this new America podcast this recording carries a creative commons 4.0 international license music thanks to silent partner for their song George to learn more about new America please visit us at newamerica.org 